Welcome back to the Working Out the Inside podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Nargawala of Advanced Psychotherapy and Healing Associates in Creskill, New Jersey. Today, episode 14, The Psychology of Suicide and the Path of Hope and Healing. This topic brings together many of the issues we've looked at previously and the ultimate consequences of not getting help or not being able to get help. Some of the questions we're going to examine. Why do people, especially young people, even consider taking their own lives? Can we predict who will try? What are the signs we can see in a loved one or ourselves? What is the best way to try to help and support someone who has contemplated or attempted suicide? What are some of the myths that still persist about suicide? Many people are surprised to learn that suicide is the second leading cause of death in 15 to 19-year-olds in our country. And suicide ranks 10th overall in causes of death in America. We're actually going against the trend. Even in countries that have high suicide rates, the rates are going down, but not here. And the rate is higher in rural America than in urban America. I've treated countless adolescents and adults for all forms of suicidal ideation, such as passive, active, and actual attempts. I still remember when I was a first-year intern at a shelter for adolescents, a speaker came from the local psychiatric emergency service, the people who dealt every day, all day, with possibly suicidal individuals. The worker told of being called to a scene to interview someone who had expressed suicidal ideation or ideas, but denied any plan or intent when the worker interviewed her. The person was very convincing, seemed lucid and in control, and the worker and her partner left. Later that day, they heard that the person had killed herself after their meeting. I thought, if these seasoned professionals couldn't tell for sure, how would I ever know? And that was really the point that they were making. They had no reason to believe the person would act in that moment. That's why we try to err on the side of caution in these instances, but not everyone is actively suicidal who has the thoughts, the ideation. And no one can tell 100% for sure what is in that person's mind at the time. Some myths about suicide. First, you have to have a plan to kill yourself in order to be sent to the hospital for an evaluation. Even a lot of therapists believe this, but it's not true. Yes, if someone has a definite plan, that's gonna get them an immediate evaluation. But for example, I once was helping a clinician assess her client for possible suicidality, and he was unresponsive to her questions, asking for assurance that he wouldn't hurt himself. She also said he seemed particularly depressed, despondent that night like she had never seen him before, and he had previously been diagnosed as bipolar. So she erred on the side of caution and sent him for an evaluation at the hospital, and I very much agreed with her. This brings us to another myth. Sending someone to the hospital is a waste of time because they can't do any meaningful treatment there. The first goal is to keep someone safe. A hospital isn't perfectly safe, of course, but it's a lot safer than that person being alone at home 
or having family members try to supervise him or her during a crisis time. And if needed, medication can be started or adjusted in the safety and supervision of the hospital. It's only the start of treatment, but safety first. Safety is not a therapy issue. It trumps any therapy issues. If someone is violent or out of control or presently trying to hurt themselves or someone else, those issues have to be addressed first before any meaningful or effective psychotherapy can continue. Another myth is that suicidal people always look despondent and are outwardly withdrawn. As I mentioned in another episode of the podcast, the most suicidal client I ever had was also the most cheery. I never would have known that she thought about killing herself every minute had she not told me. Previously, we also talked about the young woman in Massachusetts who had jumped off an overpass there to kill herself. She was outwardly very successful and, according to her parents, seemingly happy. But in her private notebook, she detailed a deep and pervasive self-hatred, a complete lack of peace, except when she let out her feelings in the notebook itself. Another myth is that if you talk about suicide with someone, it increases their risk of attempting it. First of all, if you're uncomfortable with speaking to someone about your concerns for them, then absolutely direct them to a professional or suicide hotline. There are many professionals, many therapists even, who are uncomfortable discussing suicidal ideation with someone, and it's quite understandable. But if someone is disclosing these kind of feelings to you, your responding to them won't increase the likelihood of them acting on those feelings. Suicide is multi-layered with multiple causes. We often don't realize how many factors have been weighing on a person for a long time until they find the pain unbearable and they act out in some way. And someone who's determined to kill himself or herself will find a way to do it, no matter what anyone says or does. One has to realize that you cannot control what someone else does. You might be a considerable comfort to the person who's in pain, or you might not, but that person will ultimately decide what's going to happen to them. There's rarely one cause for someone to take his or her own life. Depression is a common component. Studies show that depression makes us believe that we have fewer choices than we actually have. So while we may see the infinite hope in someone having many options in the future, that person may truly believe the opposite. This is why even children can believe their families would be better off without them. Depression can also be incredibly painful, and people can begin to doubt anything will stop the pain. I've worked with parents who deny their children medication, for example, and refuse to believe their kids are even depressed, much less suicidal, while the child is saying he or she wants very much to try medication and any other therapy or treatment that's available. Denial in psychology is not just not knowing, it's knowing and not allowing yourself to know. In other words, the information is there, it's under the surface, but you refuse to access it, whether consciously 
or unconsciously. Denial can be unconscious as well. Often parents feel it will be a judgment on them if their child is depressed or suicidal, or they just don't want to accept that someone they love could be in such pain, or they worry about the effects of the medication. I very much understand the concern about medication, but untreated depression has considerable risks and side effects itself on the mind and the body. The same parents wouldn't hesitate to get their children medication for strictly physical illnesses, such as diabetes. And we again see the stigma that mental health issues carry in our culture. Other times, loved ones will dismiss the attempt or ideation as a plea for attention. And it's true that sometimes people will seem to provide a way to be stopped, such as knowing they'll be checked on. But for someone to go to that extent, even that extent, means their need to be heard and helped is deep and profound. We have to take every circumstance like this seriously. The same with language. People will say, well, I don't mean I'll actually kill myself when I say it. It's just an expression. Well, then we have to find another way for you to express yourself because we can't trust that this isn't the one time you actually mean it. I've taught the required course for school personnel in dealing with suicidal ideation in our state. And if you're someone who works regularly with people who might be at risk either in a school setting or a workplace, or you're a clinician yourself, it's incredibly important to have a protocol in place so that you don't have to deal with such a situation alone. If there's a psychiatric emergency team in your area, such as the one we mentioned earlier in the segment, one that's run by a local hospital or mental health agency, make sure you know how to contact them. They can advise you in a crisis and check to make sure that if you had to send a client to the hospital, that the client actually did arrive safely and was being evaluated. Also know that the local police have to assist you in these kind of circumstances, but they don't always know that. So be sure to have the officers on the scene contact their supervisor for their own protocol. The most important thing is to always have a network and a plan in place. I've dealt with these situations countless times and I will still always reach out for partnership and advice because no two of these situations is the same and it is very stressful to deal with alone especially. For example, you have an adolescent who needs to go to the hospital but you can't reach his or her parents. The local children and family services organization can help with this, going to the home to contact the parents while you stay with the young person. Rule number one, don't go it alone. Even in solo private practice, you can have a mechanism in place for what to do if a client is suicidal. How do we deal with despondency and disconnection in psychotherapy? Medication can bring some relief for the symptoms and allow the therapy to progress without causing even more pain. In other words, you can do surgery without the anesthesia, and the anesthesia is not what actually cures, but it helps the work go on, and that's the role for medication regarding psychotherapy. You can do therapy without it, but it can help someone who is finally facing the roots of their own pain.
at the core of that trauma, that emotional wounding, is very often extremely low self-esteem. When you are working with a suicidal child, for example, they don't have a long resume, and pointing to their accomplishments is not a good way to go in any event. We have to unearth and reinforce their positive qualities, who they are, not just what they do. And this is the same for adult clients as well. As loved ones of someone who is suffering, we can take a similar approach, reminding the person that he or she has worth and value aside from anything they achieve and that their presence in our lives is precious and vital in itself. As we've said before, depression can make us feel we have fewer choices in life than we actually have. And when that's combined with very negative self-judgment, hopelessness can result. In therapy, we encourage the person to change the tapes in their head, the constant negative self-talk. Very often, people start out not being able to say one good thing about themselves. But if you ask them to talk about someone else, they can say countless positive things about that person. When they can start to see even one good quality in, in themselves, we can build on and reinforce that. It's also important for that person to end abusive relationships, whether at home or at work with friends or family. Without a strong, healthy sense of self, the negative words and behavior of others cut right through to the core and can be incredibly damaging. In place of that, the person can start to build a professional and personal support system that surrounds them with encouragement. This is not in the form of fake happy talk. Most of us can see clearly what others truly have to offer, even when we have trouble seeing it in ourselves. Once someone sees that they have intrinsic value, apart from any role they play in life, they can take the pressure off of having to be perfect or having to overachieve or of others' expectations and put those aside, focusing instead unvaluing themselves and their healthy relationships. If you see someone who's over-focused on external achievement and constantly unhappy with themselves, you can encourage them in a loving and respectful way to reach out for professional help. Just because someone is meeting their external goals and being successful in a conventional way does not mean he or she is happy. There are other things we can do on a macro level to help. For example, we know that access to firearms is a good predictor of whether someone will be successful in a suicide attempt. The assessment in our state now requires clinicians to ask about such access. And while that can be problematic, the underlying point is important. Access to guns is extremely dangerous for someone with suicidal ideation. Access on demand to treatment is at the other end of the scale, extremely help <coughs> excuse me, extremely helpful. Unlike every other developed nation on the planet, we do not have true universal health insurance coverage for every citizen. The good news is that we know more about how to help people than we've ever known before. The bad news 
is that so many people can't afford care. Even with insurance, many people face high deductibles, co-pays, and uncovered services. If someone is abusing alcohol or other drugs, their risk for succeeding in an attempt goes way up. We often see in the news families who say that their loved one did not mean to kill himself or herself. They accidentally overdosed. The truth is, no one is ever going to know because someone in that state is going to lose track of what's happening and can cross that line all too easily, whether intentionally or not. We need treatment on demand that is paid for. That is the standard in every other developed nation. And I know we have listeners, thankfully, all over the world who have that. It's not some dream or pie in the sky. It exists. However, imperfectly in any system, it's a lot better than what we have now. And it's something we have to advocate for with our leaders. To be the loved one of someone who has taken his or her own, his or her own life is one of the deepest woundings. People often question and blame themselves, saying, I should have known, I could have stopped him, and so forth. As we've seen earlier, if even seasoned professionals can't always tell, how could you have? And when people see their worlds contract into a place of hopelessness, when they are consumed with self-hatred, when they harm themselves with dangerous behavior, they are in a very separate place from us. The most extreme isolation is to be at war with oneself. Someone who is bound and determined to harm himself or herself will do it, no matter how we try to help. We try to rekindle whatever small ember of hope is left, but they may be too far distanced to take in anything positive. You must learn with help and support to stop blaming yourself and to instead lead a full life that pays daily tribute to the person you lost. In their healthier times, they would have wanted us to be happy and to celebrate the connection we once had. If they were bitter and abusive towards us, then they don't deserve to continue to have that hold over us, even from the grave. I hope this brief outline, and there's, there's so much with any of the topics we do, that we can break down, and I invite your suggestions of what aspects you want to hear focused on. Uh, we have to remove the stigma, the taboo, about discussing these kind of issues, and that's what this podcast is devoted to do, to play its small part. I welcome your comments and suggestions, either on the, the various platforms where you can subscribe and comment, and I hope, hope you do, or you can email me at amn91459 at nyu.edu. That's amn91459 at nyu.edu. Thanks so much for listening, especially this very difficult, challenging topic. And I look forward to speaking with you again.